books and artifacts, research and genealogy, talks and exhibits. But the thing that's important to get across is that this is not just a museum or library. It's also a place that tries to keep alive the spirit of curiosity and exploration that its founders shared. And this may be its most important mission of all, with regular training sessions for budding researchers, amateurs and professionals alike. These are the sorts of people who will keep uncovering Elon's past and bringing it into local people's lives. There's special local history all over Taiwan, but only in Elan County will you find it all gathered in one place. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin, and with me in the studio today is Anne Liao, who is a social entrepreneur for uh, from Taipei, Taiwan, and who runs an education and design group focused on green technology and innovation. So let us welcome Anne. Hi, Anne. Hi. Thanks yes. for having me. Great. Um, I'm really excited to, you know, chat with you because I know you do a lot. You kind of wear a lot of different hats, it seems. What's your education background so that I can get an idea why you're doing what you're doing, which you, you'll say later. <laughs> yep. Um, so I studied communication design in Melbourne, Australia, and I did my exchange in Mel uh, Mainz, Germany. Um, so it's all within, you know, um, you know, graphic design, photography, typography, anything that communicates with the audience, but visually. Um, so you can find people like art directors, creative directors in this field. Um, and that really helped me to do what I'm doing now in terms of, um, you know, being a social entrepreneur and uh, getting into startup life. Yeah. Yeah. So what exactly is, you know, I mean, you kind of briefly said it just now, you know, communication design, which I've never knew before I met you, actually. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so what exactly is that? You say it's like using design to communicate. Can I say that? Yes. So, so it's a branch between like communications, right, uh, and design. And so anything within like how do we share ideas with the public? Um, how do we communicate more thoroughly, uh, more holistically, perhaps um, on a wide spectrum? Um, so photography is under, you know, communication design. Uh, graphic design is under communication design. So it's really like overlooking um, like an umbrella um, over all of these different uh, other disciplines. I see. Mm. Oh, all right. It's part of right. the same family, you can yeah, say. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know if my um, my audience has noticed, a, you know, some kind of accent coming yeah. from Anne. The thing is that, let's give a little background. You are from Taiwan, yes. though, but you were, wait a minute, were you born here? Yes. So I was, um, I'm not really um, an ABC, you can say, because I wasn't really, I'm not American born Chinese. Um, so I was born in Taiwan, in Taipei, um, but because of my family, uh, we moved to South Africa. So I'm dual citizen, South African Taiwanese. Um, I lived there for about 10 years of my life. And then because of my dad's job uh, as a physics and mathematics research professor, uh, we moved to um, 
you know, United States. Uh, he was at Duke, and then we went to Holland, the Netherlands, and then it was uh, Taiwan for a year, and then it was Australia, Taiwan, and then I ended up being in South Korea actually. So I graduated um, high school in Seoul, Korea, uh-huh. and um, yep, that's like from baby till eighteen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you've been around, so that's why there's that mix of different accents all together. But it's beautiful. Thank you so <laughs> like much. Um, going back on communication design, you say you started a company seven years ago. That's related to this, right? Mm. Actually, um, I started the company in 2017 over a span of um, doing education. So I was teaching uh, design thinking um, to to 9 to 12-year-olds, preteens. And the reason for that is because my my, um, care came from, you know, I just wanted um, kids to be able to feel more competent and confident um, because I did feel that a lot of adults or even peers, you know, maybe um, felt a bit insecure. And when you backtrack that, because I'm very interested in psychology um, and, you know, we found that most of the times it's your childhood, right? Mm-hmm. So um, when you are, you know, a preteen, it's kind of interesting because you're be- between a you know, a baby, you know, a child, and then, but now you're getting into adolescence, right? And that time when hormones are kicking in, that's when the insecurity starts to come in. Uh But if you have the right tools and the mindset to start training your brain, because I see the brain like a muscle, right? So if you train to have like a systematic approach to thinking, analyzing your emotions, but really being like constructive, uh, you're more likely to feel uh, more confident within yourself to see, do I... Um, just because someone doesn't like the color pink and I like pink doesn't mean that I'm a loser, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like you be able you're, you're able to see things perspective. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a very good example to give. <laughs> yes. But, um, so this psychology knowledge that you have mm. and, and education was that all part of the communication design major that you studied, mm-hmm. or was that separate from that? I, I mean, would say it is. Yeah. Oh. Because when you're a designer, you have to think about the user. Right. You have to think about even if you are not a, let's say, a, um, you know, a science major or something like that, you might be working for a startup that is right. So a lot of times I think empathy is a really big component of design, which is user centered. It's the first thing is to empathize. Oh, and yes, like even color, right? Color, color psychology, right? Yellow means certain things, or if it has a tone of blue, it feels a different way. So, um, you know, when we're designing for clients or even branding an identity, it's really about taking their wishes, right? Their hopes and their dreams. And how do we visualize that to then, um, you know, you know, uh, create a good dialogue with the audience, right? Mm, mm. And um, yeah, so it's definitely from that course, yeah, okay. communication design, yeah. So wait, let's go way back. I mean, why communication design? Mm. Was that, I mean, what were you, you grew up with what kind of interests or hobbies that got you into this field? Mm. So um, from, you know, when I was very young, I think I was always quite entrepreneurial because my <laughs> mom, you know, she is a like kind of a serial entrepreneur in her own right. And uh, my family has always been, you know, starting businesses in South Africa. So I grew up kind of in that culture. Uh, but I feel that um, the thing that really sparked my interest was social impact. I really, really cared about uh, like the environment growing up in South Africa. You know, you see wildlife and animals and then you start hearing about how, you know, a lot of there, there's a lot of trafficking or these mm-hmm. kinds of things. And I feel like it's the hopelessness that really motivated me. Right. Like if you're given the right tools, you can then create the changes that you want to make through communication, mm-hmm. because I started 
investigating products. And what actually pivoted everything was my interest in fashion and beauty blogging. Okay. So, so it was um, back then where uh, there was a big boom on YouTube. And, um, you know, and then I started researching products. And I realized that sometimes the names of a product, even if it says organic, it's just the name. It's mm. not because it's organic, right? So that got me really interested in investigating ingredients. I'm uh. a bit of a big, like, you know, nerd about this. <laughs> and then that then moved me into thinking, wow, if I can dissect everything like this, I want to dissect more. I want to learn about what I've been taught. Okay. Right. In the general of things. And communication design really, really made me see things in that way even more. Right. Uh -huh. So photography and image will invoke a certain emotion or like a word will. And so I thought, I thought, oh, why not? Like, why does social impact always have to seem so kind of bland? Right. Can we not like create the experience uh, to be as fun as a, you know, retail mm -hmm. experience or as fun as, you know, because learning should be fun. Mm -hmm. You know, it should be creative. It should be explorative. And during that process, you gain knowledge and wisdom in yourself that lasts longer than if you were to just like, um, you know, just read information and try to memorize information, mm. which I think a lot of times uh, academics. Yeah, especially just, here in Taiwan. It's all about rote memory. Right. And, and I feel like, you know, that's even a skill on its own right. I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's a bad thing. Right. Right. It's, it's like... Different people have to learn differently. And I felt that there just needed to be more tools available for learning, especially for a student like myself. You know, short attention span, I would say not even that, you know, I would call myself lazy even, right? But actually, it wasn't because I was lazy. It's because I didn't have the right tools to invest with, invest in. Mm -hmm. So um, now that I learned, I mean, design thinking and created these tools, I felt that it's for people that need to learn like me. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. So you sound like you're very inquisitive and, you know, curious George, you're a curious Anne. Yes, That yes. make you who you are today. Yes, yes, very yeah. curious, yeah. I know. But what brought you back to Taiwan, though? Oh, because your mom's here. Yes. So um, I've always lived away from my mom. And mm. uh, I just felt that, you know, there was a, a few different reasons. I think one of them is just um, never having lived with my mom because uh, she was always doing business in Taiwan. So mm. um, just coming back here to be with family um, for the times lost, right, kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, second was because she's she has a biomedical company. So it's a, also, you know, a, a new company of hers. And um, I decided to come back and support through oh. design, right? A lot of times yeah. uh, that is actually where most of the money that you're paying, oh. you know, as a startup or as a business, you're mostly investing, right? In the logo, in the CI. Yes. And um, I could do that for her. So I thought oh. I, it's my way of giving back for all the years she's paid for my, you know, tuition. <laughs> and, and yeah. Oh, okay. So you've already designed the logo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh okay. Yeah. So simultaneously, I'm also developing, like my company is helping her company, like, yeah, manage the, the marketing and the design components right but of course um in deciding to come back to taiwan i'm sure you've done research and and i think you see that there's a market here for whatever you're doing yes yes so um if we're looking at uh, different countries as ecosystems taiwan's a really good place to incubate ideas whereas it's not that great to accelerate ideas so oh. when we are developing something like for example me when i thought about really getting into education like a building a business around the education uh, side of things i knew that you know in terms of 
building a startup, it wouldn't be uh, feasible just because of the time I would need to develop, right? Like different prototypes. I would need to run different workshops. That amount of time would it, it would kill me if I was in a, d- a different city, basically, mm. or a different country, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so, like, that, it gave me a lot of leverage points, Taiwan, because we have a complete ecosystem of technology. We also have a lot of R&D industries, right? Mm. So, um, even though I work in design thinking, what, how I, you know, the tools that I develop to teach design thinking is actually surprisingly in fashion, Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I remembered sharing uh, earlier privately um, about fashion and technology. Now, um, you know, a lot of technology can be tracked back to the fashion industry. Oh. And yes, yes. <laughs> so that's really interesting, right? Because textiles, you know, you can you can turn a fruits even into textiles. Sure. You can turn, yeah, like soybeans, something into silk. Mm-hmm. And there's d- different kinds of things. And that is what design thinking is about it's about understanding there are so many ways you can form ideas by deconstructing reconstructing analyzing prototyping and there's really not so much of uh, waste uh-huh right 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 and and uh, you know that's also something that you can touch you can feel and you can see that it can exist mm. so you know in my workshops i bring in like recycled plastic um, fabrics mm-hmm. to, to share with people you know how this technology you know, start it up and, and what it can become. And when you add like even branding or design or your own flair to the thing, then it adds another component. This is so interesting. Now, having lived in all so many different countries, how has this helped you with what you're doing and also maybe like advance your thinking and I'm sure open your, you know, your horizon so wide, you know, just seeing like maybe half mm. of the world. Yeah. I think for myself personally, as a child growing up in these different cities, I think, first of all, I'm really grateful and lucky um, to have this privilege. And I think I've always known that, especially uh, leaving South Africa was a huge eye opener for me. You know, mm. you grow up in a space where you're kind of in a bubble, right? You, you know, when you have a bit of money, it feels like you're living luxurious lifestyle. So, um, you know, leaving that environment and, see, and coming back to that, seeing how there is such a disconnect between reality and what is what are people facing like poverty, right? Mm. And it's right, really just next door to you, right? Mm-hmm. And then you, you, it was just invisible. And then I started analyzing and looking at my own life, right? There were so many skill sets that I lacked. I think uh-huh. what it gave me was perspective, like seeing that there's so many different countries in the world. You could be living a certain way, right? But the next minute, it can be stripped away from you. Mm, yeah. And I think, I think that is really startup. It's really good for entrepreneurial mindset because, uh-huh. because you know that this thing is temporary. Anything is temporary, right? Mm. Your success is temporary. Your lack of success is temporary. Your failure doesn't equal that you will fail forever. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I've been, you know, been told that uh, it's kind of like, you know, you're a cockroach that doesn't die, right? right. And I feel like, yeah, maybe I do have a little bit of that uh, <laughs> mindset where it's like, okay, so this thing didn't work out, but mm. I'll find five other options. And one of them might or mm. might not, but it's almost like you're continuously on your vision, but you are building along the way and mistakes you're, you're learning. I think it's a really good uh, support system, like mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've realized another thing. You're a positive thinker <laughs> as well. Yeah. You know what? It's funny because some people say that I am. And then I tell them I'm a realistic opportunist. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So how I explain that is like the glass half empty or half full, right? Like when you ask someone, do you think that cup is half, half empty or half full? Right. So they'll tell you it's either one of them, right? right. But I say none. I say there's water and I need to drink it. 
<laughs> and I need to pour more. <laughs> and if I don't have more water, I'm going to find a way to get some. So, so I feel like in that sense, I'm really realistic yeah. with what I have, right? But then how do we build on that, you know? Now, with all that, wouldn't you want to hear more from Anne Liao? So join me next week on In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Classic Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. <laughs> are the animals who are in the Chinese zodiac race. Have you heard of it? Thousands of years ago, the Jade Emperor called a swim race between the animals to decide who gets to be on the Chinese lunar calendar and in what order. That calendar is still used today. The animals of the Middle Kingdom shall compete in a swim race. The first twelve to finish will be our lunar calendar for centuries to come. Now, when the cat and the rat heard of the race, they were a little nervous and upset because they were both terrible swimmers. I hate water. What are we going to do? I can't swim well either, but I've got an idea. Why don't we just ride on the back of the strongest swimmer there is? Sure. But who would want to do us that favor? I think I know just the animal. Don't worry about it. I'll arrange everything. I'll see you at the race early in the morning. But the cat was a notorious sleeper. She overslept and missed the race. But the rat made it and started charming her way up the back of the strongest swimmer there was. Oh, ox! You are so strong. Look at these great muscles you have. I'm such a terrible swimmer. Could you give me a ride? I'll give you a little massage and sing to you. It'll be a lot more fun this way. My shoulders do get sore when I swim. Oh, sure. Why not? Hop on my back for a ride. Can you sing "You Are My Sunshine"? I love that song. Sure, I love that song too. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. And so the ox carried the little rat all the way through the race. You are such an amazing swimmer. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. We're almost there. Looks like I'm going to be first. Thanks, Ox, for the wonderful ride. Gotta go now. And the rat jumped right off the ox to the finish line to come in first place. The rat is the first animal on the lunar calendar. That tricky rat! She got there first and didn't do anything but sit on my back and sing. It was a nice song, though. And the ox is right behind him. The ox shall be the second animal on the lunar calendar. Well, at least I'm second. And the next animal is the strong and fierce tiger. <sighs> That swim was rough, Jade Emperor, but I made it. So glad I get to be on that calendar. <sighs> yes, it was the strongest and smartest animals that made it first: the rat, the ox, and the tiger. But then next came one of the most nimble of all: 
In fourth place is the rabbit. Hey, I'm here. How in the world did you make it so quick, little guy? I thought you didn't swim. I used my, uh, secret weapon. My hops. I jumped from one stone to another, in the river, you know. That got me through half the race. And then I seen a floating log. That was my lifesaver, and it took me all the way here. Next comes the flying dragon. Flying dragon? I thought you would be the first to come in. Why didn't you make it earlier? You know, I'm in charge of making it rain around here. And so many people needed rain today. I had to stop along the way to bring rain to different villages. And you know that rabbit? It was about to fall off the log and drown. So I gave it a little push, and it made it ahead of me. Yes, Jade Emperor. I forgot to mention that. The dragon saved my life, and she let me come in before her. Oh, you certainly did some noble deeds today, dragon. And I am proud to include you on this calendar. Next came the horse. <laughs> then it looks like the horse will be the sixth animal. But on the horse's hoof was a snake. It scared the horse right before the finish line, so it cut in before the horse. Uh, no, the snake is the sixth. The horse is the seventh. And look what I see here. A raft with three animals. We knew we couldn't make it on our own, so we worked together to build this raft. What great teamwork we see here among you today. Why then, uh, the goat shall be the eighth animal, the monkey the ninth, and the rooster the tenth. Yay! We're on the lunar calendar! The eleventh animal was the dog, although he was supposed to be the best swimmer. He just couldn't resist the temptation to play around in the river a little longer. And the dog is the eleventh animal, and the twelfth is... The pig! <laughs> the pig was last because he had stopped for snacks on the way. Congratulations! You twelve are now the immortal animals on our lunar calendar. You shall be remembered for generations to come. So now you know the story behind the Lunar New Year calendar. Now, the Chinese New Year is a time to wish people well. And what better wish than good health? So if you want to wish someone good health, all you have to say is, bless you, body healthy. 祝你身体健康. 祝你身体健康. One more time. 祝你身体健康. 祝你身体健康. And here's to a happy, healthy new year. Thanks for joining me on Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. You're listening. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International from Taipei, Taiwan. to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination... Beethoven, 1916. It's a Saturday morning in Taipei's Beitou district, and a lively crowd has gathered in a park. 
Welcome back, says a master of ceremonies, after a marching band finishes tuning up. It has been a long time. In the crowd, there's every kind of person you can imagine. An African drumming circle has shown up, and so has a TV crew and a few Mormon missionaries. There are sausage vendors and people handing out flyers and people with balloons. And then, with a final word from the MC, the welcome back ceremony is underway with twirling dragon dancers. It's an impressive, colorful scene. But what's everyone here for? The answer is the small lumber building at the center of the gathering. A row of circular windows peeks out ornamentally from its copper-tiled roof. The sloped roof hangs low over the edges of the building, and the triangular wooden supports holding it up are carved with flowers. Exactly 101 years ago today, this building opened as the Shinbeitou train station. It's charming, quaint, compared with the huge hotel complexes here, even squat. But these proud hotels should remember that it was this tiny station that helped launch their careers, linking downtown Taipei with this natural spa land in its backyard. For people in this part of town, the station is also linked with memories of the culture, the entertainment, and the late-night jaunts centered around the station, memories that still give the name Beitou a glow of nostalgia. This week, we're joining the crowd for a look back at the station's past, the story of its rise and decline, how it went away, and how now it's come back. People had long come to Beitou in search of sulfur, something you can smell in the air in some places around here. But as far as we know, the idea that people might bathe in the springs this sulfur came from only seems to have bubbled up after 1895. That year, Taiwan was colonized by Japan, a nation of hot spring lovers whose love of a good bath remains one of their big contributions to Taiwan's culture today. The year after the takeover, a Japanese man called Hirata Gengo opened Beitou's first hot spring hotel. Others followed, and over the decades, a resort town began to take shape. By 1913, a public bathhouse joined the private ones that had sprung up here in Beitou. To encourage hot spring tourism, the railway added a branch line out here, and in 1916, the Shinbeitou station opened. It's built in a hybrid Western Japanese style popular at the time. Inside the station, you can see a postcard showing how things looked early on. The building was even smaller then than it is now, more like a pavilion than a proper station. It looks like waiting for a train here might have involved a bit of a squeeze. The text on this undated postcard says proudly that tourism to Beitou has grown. And as more hotels opened up, it did. Get into the 20s and 30s, and a wave of Japanese tourism to Taiwan made Beitou a must-visit spot. Even if you don't read Japanese, you can always spot Beitou on artistic souvenir maps of the time, where it appears as curls of steam against the mountains. During these years, there was a song written about Beitou, and pressed into a scratchy vinyl album. And of course, no collection of the souvenir ink stamps scattered at tourist sites across Taiwan would ever be complete without a visit to Beitou. The station, built to attract more visitors, had done its job. And now it was overloaded. In 1937, builders had to put on an extension that increased the area by a third. This was Beitou's first golden age, 
a time of luxurious bathing, fine dining, and trains that ran once every half hour. The age wouldn't last, but the station would survive into a period that most older locals today remember even more fondly. World War II brought an end to 50 years of Japanese colonization. The train line here shut down in 1945 for lack of materials, but it reopened the following year under the new Republic of China government. Through headphones in the station today, you can hear Beitou natives discuss sweet memories of this time. One person remembers playing hooky from school here, another coming here and waiting for their aunt to get off work. Alongside these personal memories was a bigger picture, a cultural flowering of sorts centered on Beitou. Among the hot springs, directors found a ready-made romantic set for movies just north of downtown Taipei. Musicians found a niche here too, entertaining at the area's hotels, restaurants, and bars. Their bands even developed their own Japanese-flavored style of music that has become a symbol of this era. True, not everything that went on here was terribly highbrow. Beitou did have a seedy side, but that's not the story of Beitou as told by those who were growing up here at the time. For them, it was all about daily life and the tiny wooden station at the center of it. No matter what you came here to do. The reliable station would make sure you got where you needed to go. Hard times hit the station, though, around 1979, as traffic dwindled. Something a sign inside the station says was connected to a law closing the area's red light district. But the area was already in decline. The bands had been hit by the rise of the karaoke machine. And the classic black and white films that had brought a tinge of melodrama to the place were already a memory. Still, the now old-fashioned wooden station held on until 1988. That year, the whole train line this station branched off of was going to shut down. Inside the station, archival footage follows the route of one of the last blue diesel locomotives to run out this way. At the same time, early work on Taipei's yet unbuilt metro system was going to encroach on this site. The whole building might have gotten the axe had it not been for architect Li Zhongyue, who saw something worth saving here. Li convinced the Taiwan Folk Village in central Taiwan to take it. The whole station was dutifully taken apart, hauled close to 200 kilometers to the south, and rebuilt there. Locals may have been sad to see it go, but they were sure it was gone for good. Until 2003, when a Beitou native visited the folk village and sensed that the station was lonely. Back home, he set up a committee to get the station back, and was immediately laughed at. Told that the park wasn't selling, he even planned at one point to build a replica himself. But in the end, he didn't have to. Because while it took time, his proposal had struck a chord. Inside the station, you can almost feel it just by looking at the number of old tickets now on display inside. So many people had felt the need to hold on to them. People from Beitou went down south to visit, like it was an old friend. And in 2007, they started a fund to raise money for their project. 
As the movement grew, the station's new owners finally recognized in 2013 how important the building was, and they agreed to donate it. But then there was the big project of taking it apart, hauling it back, and reassembling it again. It would take a few more years, and the donations banner with stick-on numbers is still outside. But at a site close to the original one, next to the metro stop with the same name, the old wooden Xinbeitou train station has come back. And the people of Beitou have put on a party for a building. Guests of honor later in the day will include a 100-year-old and a 101-year-old, both still walking around and appearing before a building that's seen as much as they have. There will be a parade with a color guard and concerts of the old music the bands once played here. And on the sidelines, a hundred years on, today's hot spring hotels and restaurants are handing out flyers at a furious rate. This building helped create a time and an image that's still stuck in the Taiwanese imagination. Old Beitou. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. RTI news, programs, pictures, and more online at english.rti.org.tw. Check it out. Check it out. I've been very lucky. I went on to work for Amnesty International, worked on campaigns there and here in the Asia-Pacific region around extrajudicial executions, political killings, death penalty. And then with an Australian NGO, really did a lot of groundbreaking policy work, conceptual work around the relationship between human rights and development. Hello and welcome to this week's On The Line brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. The Diplomacy Training Program, or DTP, is an independent, non-government organization providing education and human rights advocacy based in Sydney, Australia. DTP provides training on various issues such as the rights of the indigenous peoples, migrant workers, modern-day slavery activists, campaigning against poverty and homelessness, torture, political killings, and death penalty. And our guest today is Mr. Patrick Old, the executive director of DTP. Human rights movement is very sensitive. So does your organization provide training to defenders on how to protect themselves and the people they hope to protect in the future? Yes, each each of our courses is different. And we work in partnership with some other organizations with very specialized skills. So one of our partners is Frontline Defenders, uh, which is based in Dublin. And they work very closely with um, international agreements with the UN Declaration on Human Rights Defenders, with the EU guidelines on human rights defenders. And they give very practical training to human rights defenders about issues around security, uh, around safety issues. And then they can also offer practical support to human rights defenders at risk, help them to monitor those risks, help them to alleviate those risks, and to respond to those risks. In certain cases, they can also help in issues around relocation of individuals at risk. Uh, We also work with an organization called Witness, which is based in New York, which does a lot of work around video advocacy. And they do a lot of work around how to keep your communications secure, 
how to um, avoid uh, and minimize the risks associated with some of the surveillance technologies that are used now and the monitoring that sometimes is employed by the state, by the private sector. So we are conscious of those issues. In each of our courses, we, we try and find out from our participants what they think will be most useful. And we also try and think about where else and from whom else they can get the support that will be useful to them. But we also, overall, feel that we need to try and make sure that the civic space is there for safe human rights work. Human rights work should be safe, and we have to try and make it safe through uh, the work that we do and the work that others do. Your training actually covers a broad range of issues, for example, the rights of the indigenous peoples, migrant workers, modern-day slavery... Uh, political killings and death penalty. Can you talk about the care for the indigenous peoples? Because here in Taiwan, for example, we have uh, 16 recognized tribes and the government has been trying to care for more indigenous peoples' rights. Yes, it's, it's a very interesting, very, very significant issue for us as an Australian organization because uh, the rights of indigenous peoples is one of the major human rights issues and concerns in Australia. When our organization was born 30 years ago, it was born with this twin focus on, it, on human rights in the region and also the rights of indigenous peoples in Australia and the region. And we see that um, there are very common issues affecting indigenous peoples, including uh, denial of their identity, denial of their culture, Uh, marginalization of their languages and cultural practices and of their relationship uh, to the land. And they have become increasingly at risk as uh, the value of resources, which is on or underneath their land, has grown. So one of the things that we've seen over the last number of years is a growing recognition of indigenous people's rights. We see that in Australia. We also see it at the international level in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. This has an emphasis on, on people's right to participate in the decision-making, so the right to free, prior, and informed consent of indigenous peoples. We see that recognition is very significant, but it's not enough. And then people need to know their rights, and they need, there needs to be the space for them to engage and have dialogue with companies, with governments, about what do those rights mean in practice. We also see in, in the, the rights of indigenous peoples very important to the, the sustainable development goals, which has an emphasis on leaving no one behind. And often it is the indigenous peoples who are left behind. If you look at the social and economic indicators in Australia, then the indigenous peoples here are overrepresented in ill health, poor health, housing, lack of housing, educational outcomes. Uh, they're very overrepresented in incarceration rates. So there are systemic discrimination issues that affect indigenous people here. And some of the ex experience of indigenous peoples in Australia is seen in other, in other countries where there are indigenous peoples. Um, and we see that there's real value in bringing representatives of indigenous peoples together to share experience, to build their, their links with each other, and to look at good practices, because there are good practices also that can be shared, including recognizing indigenous peoples as custodians of the land, as custodians of the environment, to recognize the importance of their indigenous knowledge, their traditional knowledge. We see it here now in Australia with the terrible bushfires. There is a beginning to be a heightened awareness that we should be looking back and valuing 
the traditional knowledge around land management, the way in which in, indigenous peoples used uh, fire in, in a particular way to manage their landscape in a sustainable way. And we see that Australia seems to be paying the price of having moved away from those sustainable practices. You're listening to Underline brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong and today I'm speaking with Mr. Patrick Earle, the Executive Director of the Diplomacy Training Program in Sydney, Australia. Well, another issue that actually here in Taiwan, what we face is the death penalty, which is an issue that a lot of people are concerned about, and so many are campaigning against death penalty. We have uh, an NGO called uh, Taiwan Alliance to End Death Penalty. Uh, it's been uh, lobbying uh, to end the death penalty here in Taiwan. Have they also worked with your organization? We haven't connected with them yet, but we'd be, we'd be very interested to. I think the death penalty is a really critical issue, and it goes really to the heart of human rights and human dignity. And it can be a very confronting and difficult issue to campaign on, but it's a very important campaign area, a very important area for human rights. And we see a lot of progress generally being made on the death penalty. I used to work for Amnesty International, and that was a key focus of ours, was global abolition of the death penalty. And, and we worked on the campaign here in Australia to, for abolition of the death penalty. Uh, and the use of the UN Section Optional Protocol on the death penalty. I think it was last year was the 30th anniversary of the final abolition of the death penalty from all the statute books in Australia. You know, we see progress, but there's a real need to invest in those campaigns and to have very particular strategies for abolition in different places. So again, there's value in death penalty campaigns from different countries coming together. We'd be really interested to reach out and work with the organizations in Taiwan. Your training actually uh, provides, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, various issues, including one of them, uh, migrant workers. And you know that in Taiwan, we have a lot of migrant workers from Southeast Asia, and the rights of migrant workers have been uh, promoted uh, here in Taiwan as well. We have quite a number of NGOs in Taiwan that care for the rights of migrant workers. How can they work with your organization? Yeah, we work very closely in partnership with an organization called Migrant Forum in Asia, which is based in Manila, and they have member organizations in Taiwan. And we've worked with faith, some of the faith-based groups in Taiwan around the, the issues of migrant workers. Uh, we'd like to do more in this space. We've been working with Migrant Forum Asia over the last um, 14 or 15 years on, on sort of regional programs and also sort of corridor-based advocacy, recognizing that you will only find solutions when you address the problems in countries of origin as well as countries of destination. And that people are made much more vulnerable to exploitation in countries of destination like Taiwan because of the, the process of, of how they're recruited, uh, the costs of recruitment uh, that, that are paid by migrant workers, a, a whole range of vulnerabilities. So. We've been looking increasingly with Migrant Forum in Asia, how do we link activists in countries of destination like Taiwan with the countries of origin and building those links and support very practically. And uh, one has to really admire the courage and the commitment of organizations in destination countries like Taiwan because they 
often have to overcome local prejudices against migrant workers. Migrant workers in so many societies, including here in Australia, are often viewed very negatively mm. by the wider community. So it really takes a, um, a lot of heart and courage, I think, for the organisations in destination countries to take up this issue. So we applaud them for their work. And yes, if we can reach out and build collaboration with the organisations in Taiwan, we'd, we'd really like to. Mr. Patrick Earle, about yourself, you've been involved in the human rights movement for more than 20 years. Can you tell us more? Yes, I mean... Uh I became involved in, in, in the issues as a student, I think, in, uh, when I was in England. And uh, we were then in, very worried about um, issues of, of nuclear destruction. So I was involved in the campaigns around nuclear disarmament. But also one of the big moral issues of our day there was the, the apartheid regime in South Africa, that systematic racial discrimination. And uh, England was partly responsible practically through the connections it had and through colonial legacies. So it was an important issue for us. On a range of different issues I was involved. And then I've been very lucky. I went on to work for Amnesty International, worked on campaigns there uh, and here in the Asia-Pacific region around extrajudicial executions, political killings, death penalty. And then with an Australian NGO that sort of really did a lot of groundbreaking policy work, conceptual work around the relationship between human rights and development, and was partly responsible for the, the growth of the approach that became known as the human rights-based approach to development. Uh, the work here in the diplomacy training program, the capacity building of people on the ground, flowed very much from that, uh, from that work, from the understanding that there are many different ways to support human rights through direct advocacy, um, through international solidarity, uh, through policy and, and very practical work in that way. But civil society across the region is a driving force of change. You know, there is increasing recognition of the right of people to participate in decisions and in, uh, in their own development. And it's very hard for governments or companies to deny those rights to people in many different places if we're smart about how we use those rights and if we use the language that makes uh, that is uh, draws on the commitments that governments and businesses have made then we can make advances so it's uh, you know i feel very privileged to have been a part of many different organizations and movements to be a contributor to i think what are really extraordinary efforts to advance the promises that were made in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, many different struggles for justice. Yes, uh, to promote human rights development, I'm sure that you face a lot of challenges. So what would you say has been most challenging for you? I think in, in the work of the Diplomacy Training Program, we face a constant challenge because each program is different. We have a challenge to try and make sure that our program delivers something practical and useful for each of the participants in their program, no matter what human rights issue they work on. And that's a, a continuing challenge. It's a very good challenge to have, though, and I hope we manage to rise to it. The other challenges we face really are about the sustainability of our, of our NGO, which is similar to many other NGOs. You know, we depend on funding from a range of sources, donors... How there is sort of sometimes want to invest in human rights, sometimes don't seem to want to invest in human rights, but we see the need as being reasonably constant. So, you know, we have a challenge to try and find 
financial sustainability to find people and individuals, organizations that share with us the, seeing the importance of investing in human rights defenders and human rights movements on the ground. Yes, if you like to make a donation, if you like to know more about what the diplomacy training program has been doing, please visit the website. And we've been joined on the phone today all the way from Australia by Mr. Patrick Earle, the executive director of the diplomacy training program in Sydney. And that's it for this week's online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. Awesome next week. Take goodbye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.